0: We were, yeah, flipping your day. I think I need to do that because when you get done like with the kids and everything and it's between seven thirty, eight o'clock, you're not like, I remember one guy told me, he was like, look, you're in sales, right? He goes, I was like, yeah, I was like, he's like, how many decisions do you make a day? And by the end of the day, do you want to continue to make decisions? I was like, no. At like nine o'clock, are you trying to figure out what you're doing next week and what's going on and how you're going to position like a new sale? No, you're done, you're done making complex decisions. So if you're trying to sell something, sell it to people in the morning when they're ready to make decisions. Don't, don't try to sell anybody anything like (laughs) at four o'clock in the afternoon when they're just trying to get home to have a nice whiskey. (laughs) I
1: 100% agree. I mean, yeah, I'm that way too. By, you know, probably four or five o'clock in the evening, my phone it, for sure, once the kids are home, my phone's on the counter, and I try to just avoid it. it you know how it is. Like, all day long, yeah. you're attached to one screen or another. Uh-huh. But, no, that's that's the best thing I've ever done is switch my schedule like that. And and then I try before dinner. I make sure my schedule for the next day is filled out. You know, I know exactly what I'm going to do in the morning. And then we cook dinner. Everyone sits down. We have a nice dinner. You know, however much time we get in the evening, depending on how yeah. You know, the afternoon or the evening itself plays out, but kids to bed, relax for a little bit. You know, if I don't fall asleep, putting a kid to bed, then that's when I like to spend some time reading a book here or there. (laughs) And then I go to bed and I get up at, you know, honestly, I haven't even woken up to an alarm in probably five years. I mean, except for like the nights where I stay up way too late and then I set a backup alarm or something, but 3.30 rolls around well, I, I, you know, I have chickens too. And this is kind of a little life hack for anyone that doesn't like to wake up to an alarm. And I, I hate alarms because do you remember back in the day, all the old school ringtones, you know, that you, when you only had options for like yeah. six or seven ringtones, and then you, you'd be out in public and somebody's phone would go off and you'd instantly be mad because that was the same tone ringtones, that you had as your yeah. alarm. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that I just think about that all the time. I hate waking up to an alarm, but I have a, I've got chickens and I have a a timing system on the lights in the coop. So I, I always give them about 12 hours of daylight and there's some controversy there. People think you stress your birds, you know, my perspective, they have a really good life and, and I want to get the most out of them in the three years that they're laying eggs. But anyways, the, the, the lights come on in the coop at three thirty in the morning and instantly the roosters crowing. So I'm in bed and I mean, the, the chicken coops 60 or 70 yards from the house, but I can hear that. And it's just like this Um, subtle, like if I'm in a deep sleep, I don't hear it. But if I'm like kind of coming out of a sleep, then I hear it and I wake up and it's just kind of my natural sleep rhythm. It works out well. And, and then I just start my day.
0: It it works out. I mean, like I said, I'm more productive in the mornings than I am most of the day. And Yeah. I mean, you're ready to make decisions. And the other thing, like kind of mentioned maybe before we started the podcast was I, uh, like throughout the day, you're always making decisions and a lot of your decisions are made at your work. And that's where a lot of your effort goes to. Um, and, and if, and if work takes a whole lot of your decision-making power at the end of the day, I want to come home and focus on deer Vane. I'm just kind of like, all right, what did I want to do? And the, and you have to have a lot of passion to drive it, which has gotten me like this far, but like to be able to start my day with the passion of deer Vane and be able to make the decisions around that, like that could be like a, a much better option because you're doing what you want to do and you're doing what first. you want to do. Yeah. First. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not that I don't like my job, my job's actually like, I enjoy it. It's, it's fun. I'm in sales, but it's a different to me. Like I, I had uh hire some people this year and I'm like, look, like we're influential educators. Like that's all we are. We're like, we're teaching people about our product and we're influencing them slightly to go our direction versus our competitors. And we're talking about like, people will ask us, what's what's better about you than your competitor? And if they ask you that, you have to answer. Be like, well, I think these things are better, but these things might not be. You have to answer like honestly. And that's what gets you, in my opinion, that's what gets you sales is just influential education.
1: Um, I mean, you and I are not that different in that regard then, right? I mean, that's really my job too, at least up until the, a, a client signs with me and we start working together. And you know, back to the decision-making, it's like at any given time, I, you know, like right now I have six different projects going on. Uh, You know, I've got a handful of just consultations, putting together initial property plans, but then I'm project managing three other properties right now with some logging projects and some other larger scale projects. And, And then on top of that, we've got, you know, springs rolling in. So I'm like trying to scramble and coordinate with couple nurseries and getting trees and everything ready to go and queued up for plantings and all this stuff. But when it comes to the decision-making, it's at least for me, it's a heavy, heavy workload because I have now been handed the decision-making role for something that's going to affect this property for the lifetime of the client, for sure, if not generations. Right. And And I don't, I don't take that lightly, you know, I, and I don't think anyone should, you know, if I could go in there and be like, yeah, you know, just tornado this area for deer and do this. And then, then years go by and, you know, right. it's one thing to create good deer habitat. That's honestly, that's relatively easy at the end of the day. If you can promote regeneration and that early successional growth, you know, that's really what those deer thrive on. And that aspect's easy. But, you know, we were talking about earlier is I'm, I'm always trying to look for ways to produce income off that property in one way shape or form and it, it you know with hunters and recreational properties it's good because most of the time they don't hire me for that aspect so when i say hey you know if, if we do these things and we invest a little bit of money here over the next 5 or 6 years you know maybe we're taking x percentage of the the timber harvest sale and putting it back into the property to create these permaculture edges that are going to produce an abundance of mass right both beneficial to wildlife and humans down the road like you have the potential to make a lot of money off this in the future and the big thing first and foremost is prioritizing the soil health on that property and that's what you know we we're talking about that too where yeah. some of these guys don't understand the the value that they're sitting on when they have 50 percent of their property in tillable land that they've just been renting to a cash crop or down the road you know a lot of them it surprises me. A lot of them are still, you know, they've owned the property for 10 years and they're still just operating under some handshake agreement with some guy that, you know, he's, he's a good farmer. He's always got the crops off before rifle season. And, you know, he he pays on time and this and that. Well, and then I'll ask, you know, how much are you getting paid to lease that out? You know, usually it comes up because I'm asking, are you willing to give up a little bit of that land? You know, if we take, take back 30 feet, of edge around that field and actually build some legitimate edge habitat back because I'm, I'm sure you see this on your property or, or neighboring properties. There's, there's no such thing as edge habitat most of the time, unless someone's made a conscious effort to create edge habitat, right? We farm yeah. all the way up to the edge of the hill. If you're in hill country, it's right to the very edge of the hill. If they can clear those trees, they clear those trees. And then there's this human Mindset on aesthetics, where we want this clean cut edge, right? We want a nice manicured lawn and a nice hard edge on our landscaping or our driveway, whatever it is, and then same we yeah. you know we want this nice clean row crop field, and then we want this nice hard edge straight to mature timber because most people's perspective, that's all that has value, and then the recreational side of a property is just you know exactly what it what it is recreation, right? We don't right. think of that as a way to produce money, but that's where that's where I come in, right? Where I'm like, hey, you know, if you have the patience, beyond the timber sale, you know, and that's a whole another aspect in and of itself is just, you know, managing your timber long term instead of just taking everything you can short term and not planning ahead. Um, but adding that production or that potential production value to your habitat projects at the end of the day can can be very beneficial. And, you know, a lot lot of properties aren't going to pay out and pay themselves off. But my, my ultimate goal is just to get the management practices to pay for themselves. Sure. You know, and, and I don't know how much, I know you had uh, whitetail habitat solutions down there and got a plan put together. I don't know how much you've dug into that, but you know, if you don't, uh, if you don't have a well laid out management plan, what'll happen is you'll do all this work and things will improve for a, period of time, three to five years usually, and then they'll start to decline slowly. And it's, it's kind of that lobster in the pot of boiling, boiling water analogy, right? Like you don't really see that, but then all of a sudden you look back 10 years down the road and you're like, man, it, it was really good for a while. And we did all this work. You know, we pass up all these young deer. What's actually going on? Well, it goes back to that early succession, right? We, and this is kind of a tricky thing, at least from my perspective, and again, I probably put more thought into it than most people, but <laughs> <laughs> it's uh you know, for f- with a biology background, you try to look at different successional growth, it's a it's tricky to create this constant state of early succession without interrupting the natural ecosystems all the time. So you're always trying to find like the ways to do that in one way, shape, or form and not overdo it you know, create this balance in there, but it's fun. I mean, it's just, like no, I said, I, I put a lot of I have in. to
0: imagine it is because like <clears throat> a lot of people, like when you're managing a property and you're trying to build it and you want, you want early succession, right? So you want, you want new growth. You want that smaller, you want that high, those high stem count areas of all that new natural forage, right? For, for them to bed in, for them to eat, for them to browse, all that kind of stuff. But you can't like, you can't do that every five years to the same portion of the property. Right. So every time you, you do that to a new portion of the property, you're changing up kind of the patterns that the deer want to use or that the wildlife wants to use. Cause now like, you know, this area that was really open before, is no longer open. It's got a whole bunch of like thick stuff in it. So cool. I'm going to bed there a little bit more, or I'm going to spend more time there rather than going out to this food plot. I'm going to stage in here or if you have like the fruit bearing stuff or the mass mass crop stuff, and all of a sudden foods there, then, then in a different spot, all of a sudden that tree stand that was good four years ago is no longer like doing very well. Right. So, so it pushes the hunter to continually adapt to, and a lot of people are like, you know, oh, I finally figured this thing out. I want it now. I know what I need to do, where I need to do, and how I need to do it. And then we then you cut all this stuff, and then it's totally different. They're like, shit. <laughs> now yeah. I gotta refigure <laughs> everything else out. <laughs> and
1: that's you know, where we live in southwestern Wisconsin, you know, anywhere in hill country in general, it's a significantly bigger challenge than just flat land. You know, you get down to yeah southern or central iowa illinois southern minnesota even you know south central wisconsin where it's a lot flatter it's a little bit different because you're you're literally just dealing with the you know the shape of the timber itself the shape of the property and how those edges lay out but when you're in hill country you have all this extra surface area and all this topography and that topography takes precedence over dense vegetative cover all the time i mean topography is the greatest form of cover there is In those bucks, they know that they utilize it, right? Like you see, you all see that trail that is just inside the woods, just on the crown of the hill, you know, where those bucks can travel that row of cover where their head can pop up over and they can kind of scan it at the same time. They can see the bottom of the hill. That's where they like to bed right on that military crest all the time. So to your point, you know, going in and, and changing up these cuts from time to time and, and rotating them, that's ideal for sure. You know, that, that's, that's good timber stand management is rotating your cuts But it's not always possible to do that in hill country because they're going to, they're going to try to prioritize the topography more than anything else. And if you start rotating those cuts around, you're going to create food sources for them, but you're not necessarily going to create consistent bedding cover. They they are going to utilize it from time to time, but it's not going to be nearly as consistent. You know, then the other big factor is just the wind direction and how that plays out. You know, or dictates where they actually bet on any given day. Right. So it's yeah. like if you have a property that's a, a centrally located ridge and betting on both sides, you can get away with a lot, but maybe you only own half of that ridge and your property's really, really good on a west wind where that wind's coming out of the west and it's blowing over their back. So, that, you know, your, your hillside is facing to the east. Right. That's, yeah. that, that's a, that's, if, if I'm looking to buy a property and I have to choose one or the other, I'm looking for that because those West winds are prevailing winds. Right. You know, we get the, we get the East winds usually before storm front.
0: Them and when you hate them. Yes. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Like November uh, 1st I, to the 6th.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. When you're all set up, all your right. stands are primed. Yeah. No, I've been there yeah. before for sure, but, but it is, it, it's a challenge and that's, You know, at the end of the day, it's the cliche of patience being a virtue, right? It's like, you know, if you you first and foremost understand that about your property or any particular setup, you know, it's one thing to talk about a designed property, but it's another thing if, if you're hunting public land and you scouted out an area and you understand like, okay, they're bedding here, they're feeding here. This is a transition area where I can set up and hunt them. You need to understand like- what wind to hunt that on, not just the wind as far as not getting busted, but what's that wind that's going to put that buck in that adjacent bedding area and move him towards that food that night because if you hunt it on the wrong wind, you kind of waste the spot and burn it out a lot sooner especially on public land with other potential pressures but if you hunt it on the right wind, you know it only takes that one tactical drop in, setup. oh, there's the buck, done so it's It's tricky, but yeah, the habitat side of things, it's, you know what? I I just don't like to see guys invest a ton of time and then give up on it. You know, like, oh, we did all this work again. You know, we did all this work and it was really good. And now it's going downhill. Well, now you either have to go back in there and recut all that stuff. Yeah. And that's why, that's why hinge cutting can be brutal. You know, hinge cutting, it's a tool that's very valuable in some situations. But if you go in and hinge cut an entire bedding area, it's, it's usually only good for X amount of time. And then you have to go in and recut it. And I don't know if you've ever tried to recut an area that's been hinge cut five or six years prior. It's like, you know, you cut the head off that snake and then 10 of them grow back and you're trying to get in that tangle. And now you've got a you know, the, the biggest part of your tree is barely hanging on and it's just, it's it can be dangerous and it's mm-hmm. messy and you get tangled up in that stuff. So that's I, I prefer in those bedding areas. You know, I'll hinge a tree here or there if I'm trying to create some obvious backing or side cover. But for the most part, I cut those suckers as close to the ground as possible so that I can run fire through there and, and burn them off or top kill them and reset them every three or four years. That's about the the best practice I've found thus far, as far as you know, trying to manage for that perpetual early successional growth.
0: Right. So you're saying. And then and I want to back up a minute to regenerative farming, but in the hinge cut thing, like this, I've that's one of those things that, um, man, I used to be in, I used to do, uh, electrical work. And some of the shit that you'd be like, and we, we installed a lot of lights. Um, and it'd be like, yeah, you got a 10 year warranty on this. I'd be like, dude, this person ain't even going to know who we are in 10 years. Like, we're going to yeah. put this shit in and like, It doesn't even matter. And I don't know, like talking about failure rates of of the lights, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, all right, well, if we put in, you know, if we buy them from this vendor, let's say we buy them from GE um, or Philips, brand names, everybody knows, like what is, and we buy a thousand of them, what's our failure rate gonna be? Is it 1%? Is it half a percent? Is it 3%? And what's the failure rate over the years? Cause we're gonna warranty the service work on it so you're trying to understand uh, what this looks like seven to 10 years down the road. And it's all these brand new led light fixtures. Like these, these things came out a year, two years ago, like and yeah. now you're putting them <laughs> in for 10 years and we're trying to guess what that is. And I'm relating that back to like, if you hinge cut, a lot of people will go out and they'll be like, yeah, I saw this hinge cutting video and, and they'll talk about it. And I've talked about hinge cutting with my buddies, but it's great that you bring up like six years down the road, like that stump that was, you know, two feet tall or whatever is now 10 little stumps. And they're like 10 little scraggly things. Just like, all right, what am I going to do with this? Like trying to figure it out versus, so you're saying cut them real close to the, to the ground, like an inch or two or whatever, as close as you can get. And then like run fire through there. And then you just effectively dump. Do you still leave that tree attached or do you dump the whole thing clean cut off? Yeah, usually I'm, I'm dumping it off
1: completely. Okay. Yeah. So I'm flush yeah. cutting that tree's laying on the ground, you know, by f- five or six years, you know, it, it still creates cover. And okay. if, you know, if it's a sizable tree and it, for sure, anything 10 inches in diameter or bigger on the ground is enough to hide a deer. I mean, you've probably seen deer bed down in the woods. They, they'll utilize the topography and anything they can, and they are masters of disappearing. But yeah. You put that log on the ground, you give them some cover there. The big thing is that when that stump regenerates, those stump shoots are now within range where you can can at least stress them and set them back, if not top kill them completely with fire. Or, you know, if you do have to go back in and cut, it's significantly easier to go back in and just cut them off at ground level than it is to try and go in there and, and deal with that hinge cut mess. Now, yeah. I, I do utilize hinge cutting a fair amount. Uh, one of the big things that I use it for is... Improving pinch points or, you know, Mm -hmm. just kind of redirecting deer in general. And yeah, I don't do it so much the aspect of trying to keep that tree alive and bring browse down to that deer level. Again, I use it as more of a, a hard obstruction or a barrier to create some form of resistance to get those deer to move around. And when you hinge a tree versus just felling it, it stays off the ground. And mm-hmm. now the water and the insects and stuff aren't on it as much, so it lasts a lot longer. I mean, if you fell a tree and lay it on the ground, it's gonna start breaking down pretty much immediately, you know, depending on the tree type. It might last five or ten years, twenty years, you know, if it's a big tree. But when you hinge it and leave it hang there and it it does kind of stay alive for a little yeah. while, then it'll last a lot, lot longer as that natural fence, so to speak. So it works really well on edges. Like if I'm edge feathering and I'll like, when I map out my plans, uh, I do a, I I do everything through Onyx where I can color coordinate everything. So it makes sense. And then the client can really visualize the whole plan, but uh, I'll do a a dotted purple line or a dashed purple line for edge feathering. Like, you know, we really, and and again, you know, there's not a lot of edge habitat. So 99% of the edge is going to have a dotted purple line, but in some areas I'll do a, a solid purple line which is an edge barrier. So then instead of feathering that edge and cutting those trees, uh, more perpendicular to the actual edge itself, where we're either felling them or hinging them into the field to expand our edge or, or the other way back into the woods, if we can't give up any of that field, then we just fell them parallel to that edge to create that barrier and, and force those deer, you know, to, for example, enter a plot on one end or the other, instead of in the middle. You know, make sure. them pop out within bow range or make them pop out well outside of what, you know, might bust you if the winds kind of one off on that day. You know, and, and then the same thing goes, I'll use those purple lines just to map out ravines or anywhere that's going to be a natural barrier or natural resistance to force those deer around. And again, it, it really helps visualize, you know, that's the beauty of virtual maps in general, right? That satellite imagery where you can really visualize that and kind of get a feel for that deer movement. And and then again, you take into cons- consideration the wind directions on any given day and how those deer are going to move around that. And that's, you know, that, that's probably the biggest thing with pinch points in general where, you know, that pinch point is just a way to divert deer around your wind. That's how I view them as much as possible. Cause I want to set up where that buck has the, the best advantage he thinks he has while he's traveling, but has to, maneuver around a certain area and or that's go, where I want my wind to push.
0: Yeah, or go through or somehow like, yeah. Correct. I get what you're saying. Um yeah, that and that makes sense. And so like <clears throat> using those hinge cuts as somewhat like deterrence. Like, hey, I'd re- if, if if there's three trails here, I'd really appreciate it if you took trail two. Exactly. <laughs> and that's you know one. that's sometimes all it takes. And you'll see this if you
1: especially in hill country it's it's a lot more apparent because, again, you're always going to have that trail that runs along the top edge of the hill. Then you usually have a trail that runs along the bottom edge of the hill. And if it's a really big hill, you'll get that one trail that kind of side hills the whole time, right? Yeah. And what you'll see is you'll have a tree down, you know, just naturally blew over or something. And it'll be... A, hundred yards upstream, but it'll deter that deer movement in that spot and it'll force them neither to go high or low from that point. They're not going to go up and around and back onto that trail where it's steep. They're going to go up to the next trail or down the other trail. So it doesn't always have to be right in a specific area, you know, and in fact, you, you kind of want to do it upstream or downstream so that you're, you know, making that that V-shaped flow of movement. So you have that you know, that is it hunt stand or whatever app has that like scent cone feature. Yeah. Yeah. So you, if you can kind of visualize that scent cones, like you want those deer to move around that so you can back them up a ways here or there. And it, it it doesn't take much, just that, that little bit of resistance in that trail, you know, it's gotta be enough to make it so they can't go down the trail, but I've done stuff like that my whole life where one time I put up snow fence in a spot, you know, like a 30 foot section of snow fence. And it was unbelievable what it did. You know, other times I just repair an old fence in the woods that, you know, a, a property line fence that isn't really serving its purpose as like holding cattle in or out. So no one really cares. But then I just go through and fix a couple wires in it and it just creates enough resistance. And then you leave open wires in other spots and those deer, they just kind of naturally flow through those areas. And mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that's just the name of the game, is those little details of getting those deer to flow a little bit better again around your scented, you know, where your scent's going to be pushed into.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a few trails that I've kind of, um, uh, that, and this is a whole different subject, but there's a few trails I hate when I'm like trying to figure out how I'm going to approach a stand. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to kind of approach it this way and I'm going to, going to have to like cut a little trail through here and whatnot just so i can be quiet and you do that and you know two weeks later there's deer tracks on it and then it's just a new brand new highway um she's like shit i didn't want that but like this is what i'm gonna have to deal with and how am i gonna deal with that and then i need to adjust right and figure out how i can not have them do that or i need to move where i wanted to hunt to where they are now going to be right in a way um But anyway, I wanted to jump back to like regenerative farming. You're talking about uh, making making the people that you work with um, some more money. Um, What are like besides, you know, planting beans and corn and hay and alfalfa and all that jazz? What is uh, what are some good like good non like what I want to say? What non monoculture or non like standardized commercial egg ways that people can make some money?
1: Uh, well, the biggest thing is going to be mass producing trees and or cattle or okay. some sort of livestock production, which, you know, it's kind of a good seg- segue actually from what we were just talking about with pinch points. Uh, so a couple of clients I have right now and actually on my own property what I do is I actually, I have food plots within cattle pastures and I fence them off. And, you know, the deer, when you do open up the gates to these food plots, the deer naturally use those gates. So you already created an access trail into that plot where you want those deer to, to enter. But on the regenerative side of things, there's no better way to manage land than with cattle. Right. I mean, there is no better way. And, and, I'm sure there's people out there that will love to argue with me, but I'll gladly chest up and, and bring plenty of facts. If, <laughs> if, you, if you dial back the hands of time and you look at our country or the soil in this country alone, I mean, it's pretty evident that the soil health in our country has been declining since we removed large hooved animals off the landscape, i.e. the buffalo, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you have an animal that can process nutrients and get it back in the soil more efficiently than anything that we could ever imagine right we're never going to reach that level of efficiency that we do with cattle in one way shape or form you know it might be sheep it might be goats it might be cows you know they're the more efficient maybe might even be pigs Uh, but with the cattle side of things so my food plot programs are all no-till diverse cover crops on a rotation so we put in a multi-species blend in the summer and then we come in late in the summer and we either roller crimp it down or we put cattle in there and let them demolish it. And then we drill in the fall crop and we're trying, I'm striving as hard as I possibly can to get away from chemicals. I mean, our goal on every single client property is usually by year two or three, we're completely chemical free. And, you know, we don't spray anything if we're going to, if we're going to graze cattle in there, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, it, most situations you can get away with it as long as you're not disturbing the soil. And again, the, the, the roller crimper is kind of mimicking the cattle and you know, the, the hoof action and how it crimps and and kinks the stems of the plants. But the beauty of the cattle is one, you can actually get paid by your neighbor, you know, and this is what I'm always trying to look for, you know, so I get to a client property and I do a lap around the block, so to speak. And I'm looking for, you know, what, how the, the adjoining properties connect how the you know wherever those edges flow, if there's adjoining timber or you know whatever it might be, but I'm also looking around at what the neighbors are doing. Do they have cattle? Do they have sheep? Do they have anything that we can utilize? And my mindset on that, and it goes back to the regenerative side, is if we can take pressure off that neighboring property for a little while, that's going to improve that property for wildlife in general, but also utilizing those cattle to cycle nutrients and improve the property that I'm managing or putting a management plan together for is even more beneficial. And then on top of it, you know, maybe you charge that guy a little bit to graze his cattle there, or maybe you just trade some other way, you know, uh, at least a recent property I was on, uh, down by Boscobel area, uh, he still has to negotiate with the neighbor, but he wants to get access to cross the neighbor's field. So he has better access and his neighbor has cattle and it, it just lines up perfectly. And I was like, Hey, you tell him he can graze his cattle in your food plots twice a year. You know, and we're talking short durations and that's, that's ultimately the, the, the key to well-managed land with cattle is the, you know, the stocking rate, IE the, the amount of animals on any acre at any given time, but then also the duration, you know, so A lot of people listening probably think grazing cattle is so detrimental to wildlife habitat because they're used to seeing a cattle pasture where cattle have free reign all the time. And then, you know, cows, steers, bulls, whatever, you know, they're, they're selective feeders just like deer are. So they're going to go around, they're going to eat the things that they want the most. And if, if the, you know, they have the space, then they're just going to continually go back and pick on the best plants. And then you get those clumps of brush here or there. And then ultimately someone goes in and mows that off and it turns into this like pool tabletop, smooth green grass pasture, which is horrible for everyone. Uh, But when you run cattle through more similar to what like a herd of Buffalo would do where they're moving through an area during a short period of time, then they consume X percentage of of whatever's there they trample x percentage of what's ever there and they cycle all those nutrients through into the soil at a much faster rate so you get the fertilizer aspect you get the the crimping crop termination aspect it actually works out really well or if you broadcast your seed into a standing crop and then run them through then they actually integrate that seed into the soil underneath the thatch layer and it just it works out really well is it going to be as clean as a, a sprayed tilled drilled in plot no absolutely not yeah but the benefits to it on that regenerative side are exponential compared to the way typical food plots are done where we're just constantly upsetting and destroying that soil biology in an effort to essentially sterilize the environment so that we can plant and grow only what we choose right and that's yeah. i i would say the uh the the biggest thing that I try to express to my clients is aesthetics, right? It's like, if you can get past the idea of having this perfectly clean plot and move past just purely, again, those human aesthetics that we are so
0: accustomed with. to. Yeah. Yes.
1: And you know, they're marketed to us. Right. It's like, right. and I nice get it. Clean, like I, clean,
0: clean yes. food plot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, the reality is most of the weeds that are growing.
0: I'll be right back. One thing.
1: Yep, no problem.
0: <laughs> I think you had to poop. All right, I'm good. I did not have to poop. <laughs> I pooped before the podcast started. <laughs> All right, no, so it, you were saying the reality is those weeds.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't even like to use the term weed because it's it's a relative term, right? A weed is a plant, an unwanted plant growing in an area, right? And I right I, I, I don't know if that's the actual definition, but that's how most people see it. But most of those weeds are a native weed that are a, a preferred food source for deer or other wildlife during some time of the year. Right. The, the disadvantage to most weeds is that they're not green. You know, they've naturally desiccated, dried up and went dormant or, you know, maybe they're an annual or biannual weed and they just died anyways. They just don't have the food value come fall during the hunting season. You know, again, I, I try to get my clients to shift that perspective where it's like, hey, if those weeds aren't actually choking out the crop in your food plot, then there's no reason to to go spray your food plot for weeds at the end of the day. Right. And
0: if, you, if what you want to grow is still growing and still growing well. Correct. No, like, why are you putting the extra effort into the chemicals there? Sure.
1: Correct. correct. And I, like,
0: I really appreciate that because that was one thing that we were trying really hard. We're cleaning food plots, like like we do not. We have 15 acres; it's all in CRP, or we have 25 acres; it's all in CRP, and we're trying to get a couple food, a couple small food plots in. So we're cleaning; we're just cutting dead. It's all so many dead trees that are still standing. So we're cutting a lot of that down, and then cleaning out the brush, the underlayer, and everything. And um, my dad and I were like, "How do we do this without chemicals?" And in year one, we like couldn't we couldn't find a way and we were up against the clock, but this year trying to really figure out. So I'll, I'd like to pick your brain on that a little bit, but sorry fire. to interrupt. Fire. Fire. Yeah. Get yourself comfortable with fire. I mean, that's uh, serious. Very you know, it's...
1: comfortable with fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're a pyro, huh? a pyromaniac. A little bit. No, but that's, that's the thing. You know, I've of all the habitat plans I've written, I, you know, I, I started and I would go in and I would, I'm always looking at all the vegetation, right? You know, and and identifying invasives. And obviously some properties are obvious, right? It hits you in the face. I think your property, I think I saw some pictures, you have a buckthorn issue. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah.
0: In a a chunk.
1: Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I've never been on a property that doesn't have invasives at this point. It's just a matter of what level they're at. And, you know, to anyone listening, whether you have invasives or not, your management should be the same, in my perspective, because you're going to have invasives at some point. I mean, that's just plain simple. They're spreading across the country at a rapid pace. You yeah. know, and, and the worst part is not to go down a rabbit hole on invasives, but I spent this spring digging up Japanese bar barrier, ripping it out in my backyard. Like we bought this house a few years ago and it was part of their landscaping. And then I, I didn't really pay that much attention to it because I started, I started working on the woods before I started working on my landscaping around the house, but, uh, I was out in the woods. And I noticed all this, the barberry popping up all the time. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh man, there's three of these bushes in the landscaping in the backyard and I rip them out. And then coincidentally, the next day I was in Menards and I went into their landscaping department and they're still selling the shit. So it's like, you know, we're never going to get ahead of it. No. And that being said, there's decades worth of seeds in the seed bank right now from these invasives. And, you know, even if you work your butt off to get all the invasives off your property, if your neighbor's not doing anything, then all it takes is a couple birds to fly into his property, eat some of those seeds, fly into your property and poop them out. And now right. you have another generation there anyway. So at the end of the day, same thing across the board, get comfortable with fire. You know, most of the invasive species, uh, shrubs specifically, if you cut them flush to the ground or as close to the ground as possible it takes them a long time to grow back to a a state where they can actually produce seeds or berries again and spread, right? Get back to that sexual maturity level. Yeah. Whereas your native shrubs, when they're established, they're adapted to fire. So you can burn them off and top kill them. And it's actually quite beneficial to do that, to, to cut them off and promote that fresh growth. And what you'll see there is they'll grow back in a year or two max and produce the seeds and berries and have all the same benefits that they had as a three or four year old plant. So, right. so I basically, all of my management plans now, is just like, Hey, we got to get comfortable with fire or else you got to get comfortable with a backpack sprayer, huffing chemicals and poison for the rest of your life. Cause you're going to be in there every five or six years spraying these invasives or, you get yourself a herd of goats and you run those through there every few years, you know, that's, that can be beneficial as well. But again, running fire through there periodically, you know, that's, that's the best thing you could do to manage those invasives. Mm -hmm. It just keeps setting them back and eventually it'll kill them off. And, you know, even if you go through again and spray or remove all those invasives, those seeds are there. So as soon as you get soil disturbance of any type, you know, it could be turkeys scratching for acorns in a spot. If there's enough sunlight, hitting the ground there, you're going to get invasives growing
0: back. Gotcha.
1: So yeah. something to think about.
0: Oh yeah, it is. I mean, that, I mean, I, uh, that was, that was the kind of uh, one of our, one of our family friends is a organic farmer. And he was like, man, if you want to really get rid of the weeds and you want it to be clean. And again, to your point, weeds are whatever we say they are. Um, Like you just got it. You got to work the soil a lot. He's like, we just till and till and till. Um, and that just keeps breaking down, breaking down. Like they'll grow faster and you break them down. They grow again, you break them down. Like that's the best way to do it. And then let the, let the natural seeds out compete. But, um, I remember there was one year and he, he laughs, um, about it. His name's Daryl and he's, he's hilarious. I have a few friends who know him and he's like, there's one year is a really bad crop year. And he's like, my crops are fine. Everyone else is dying. You want to know why I got worms, bro. <laughs> he's he's like I don't kill everything my worms keep everything alive for me they keep the soil moving they keep everything going and it's like you know just the idea of being able to to make money like on a property as well as not be spraying it with chemicals and not be uh not for even not for the property but also for like your own health benefits you know and all this shit like oh, yeah. how many people are have sued um what's it called what's the round Roundup, up yeah Yeah. you know suing them for for cancer and like you still see it all the time on the shelves and it's still being sold and people like yeah just hit it with Roundup. i'm like dude like people are like (laughs) there's a lot of people getting cancer from this shit and dying not necessarily just from i'm sure they have a lot of poor life decisions but like i don't need another chemical coming through
1: oh yeah no and not to again there's a whole other rabbit hole here i'm actually in the process of I'm trying to compile all the information and put together like a a pseudo documentary on this because it goes pretty deep. Uh, you know, the whole glyphosate roundup stuff. And if there's anything that we've learned in the last couple of years with trusting big corporations, simply yeah. put, big pharma and big ag are the same damn companies. You know, they Bayer. Are.
0: Monsanto, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, Monsanto and Bayer. So you can't believe what they're selling you. You can't, you know, and, and the way those giant corporations work is they just look at their profit and loss at the end of the year. Right. So Correct. for a big company, you know, and Pfizer's exactly the same way I've now, I just yeah. said the, the, the P word and I'm probably gonna get <laughs> shadow ban, but it's like, you know, if they look at their, their projected income and they say, okay, we're going to make, 30 billion dollars off of this product but the side effects we're looking at potential lawsuits litigation that's going to come at us and we're going to end up paying out 10 or 15 billion dollars well they're still making 20 or or 15 billion dollars off of that product so they're just like well that's that's in our mind that's good you know the difference is you know it'd be different if we're dealing with something petty where it's like oh you know like the lights that you were talking about earlier from GE. But yeah, yeah. if we sell a, a billion dollars worth of those and we have X percentage of a failure rate, we're gonna end up paying out or replacing X percentage. Not a big deal. It's a All little right. bit different when you're messing with people's lives. Right? At least I right. think that. And uh they can't sue you when they're dead, Tom. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> they can't but the the glyphosate thing goes way, way beyond the cancer stuff. And there's a lot of research that's been muffled over the years. And this is I come across it all the time. And a lot of it, you know, again, back to my line of work. And uh you know, actually being self-employed is kind of a a double-edged sword for me because I one, I overthink things and and two, now I manage all my own time. So uh, you know, if if I go down a rabbit hole at night and start pulling up research papers and again biology background. So I'm not afraid to read the fine print on some of these long papers, but in a nutshell, let's just, I'll, I'll kind of try to abbreviate um, the things that people should be more aware of. And, you know, I think we all kind of know the stigma that comes with chemicals when you're mm-hmm. you're dealing with herbicides, fungicides, pesticides, you know, any form of biocide, which, you know, essentially is a poison to a living organism in one way, shape or form. And, uh, you know, the big argument with glyphosate is that it it doesn't affect people or animals in general, it only affects plants. It targets a very specific pathway in those plants and breaks down enzymes. And you know, that I don't need to get into all the details on the science, but anyone will argue, I just commented on a Facebook post the other day and, and unleashed hell on myself because all these people came at me and whatever. But <laughs> that's what that's what most people think. But here's the reality. 10 years before glyphosate was patented as an herbicide, it was patented as a pipe cleaning compound used in boiler systems to descale minerals. Okay. So, what it does is it acts as a chelator and it ties up minerals in that pipe, that boiler system, so they can flush them out. It does the same thing in your soil, where it ties up minerals in your soil so they're no longer bioavailable to plants and therefore if the plants aren't uptaking those minerals they are no longer bioavailable to the animals consuming those plants and that includes humans i mean we could go down a rabbit hole i'm not a a public health expert or a, a human nutritional expert or nutritionist at the end of the day but i mean if we look at the bulk of these strange diseases that we're dealing with as a human population you can relate most of them back to mineral deficiencies in our diet because we're no longer getting the minerals from the foods that we're eating. Okay. So that's, that's part of it from a deer manager standpoint or a wildlife manager standpoint, if you want to grow big deer and you think that you're contributing to the nutritional content of their diet by planting food plots, but you're going out and spraying those food plots habitually with glyphosate, then you're, you're actually working against yourself at the end of the day, you know, those deer are, are basically eating empty calories in your food plot. So they might be attractive to them from, you know, somewhat attractive during certain times of the year, because you're planting something there that they can't get anywhere else, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's beneficial to them. And, and because of that, at some point you're, you're missing out on more opportunities than having healthy soil with a healthy, diverse planting in right. there. And that's a whole nother avenue that we could talk about too. You know, the the importance of diversity in your food sources for your deer herd and all wildlife in general, but you know, if we're talking specifically about deer, the importance of that diversity goes far beyond just attracting them. You know, so what usually when I explain to a yeah. client or a prospective client that planting this diverse buffet in your food plot is going to create more consistency because, you know, if those deer one day want clover versus brassicas versus winter wheat versus, you know, whatever it might be, if you have all that in the same general area, it creates consistent movement on your property, but there's a ton of other research that proves and shows that animals have this nutritional IQ where they know that if they eat this plant in a certain you know, at a certain level or certain moderation that they can now eat more of this plant. And it also changes the chemistry in their body or in their digestive tract where they eat one plant. Now they can actually digest this other plant better. And and we know through research, uh, Dr. Fred Provenza has a really good book and a ton of research out where he studied uh, sheep and goats and deer have a very, very similar nutritional demand to these animals and he found out you know, like these are wild populations as well as domestic populations, but he found out that a lot of these things are passed on from generation to generation. They're actually learned behaviors where they actually create these uh, cultures within populations where they know, like they understand that they could eat this plant if they eat this plant first. So we think deer just. Animals that, oh, yeah, they they love our soybeans, right? The, all those forage soybeans, man, you should see the deer eat those things. Well, if you plant this diverse crop in there, now they can come in and they can eat a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And their, their nutritional, uh, you know, their, their, the content of the nutrition that they're actually taking in is more balanced and it creates a healthier deer. And then again, you know, if you're not spraying your soil, with a mineral chelator now you're getting all the mineral content through those plants and into those deer so they benefit at a dramatically higher level than just spraying and that's why i just well if anyone out there is listening on the the spray till spray practice of food plotting is the absolute worst thing you can do to your soil and from what i just said it's the worst thing you can do to provide nutritional nutritionally dense food for your deer herd
0: I have to imagine there's no, I have to imagine like 99% of people, the far majority would say, hey man, if you said to them, hey man, we can grow this food plot without chemicals or with chemicals, and it's going to be the exact same, if not better without chemicals, 99% of people are going to be like, yep, give me the no chemicals, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's just like a general common sense thing. The reason... I think it's, it's based on education, like myself included is like, okay, I just don't know how to do it without chemicals or, or, and this is the worst part is I'm too lazy to do it without chemicals. You hit the nail on the head.
1: It's not necessarily the lazy thing
0: or time. It, and it's a or... time thing. And I, I completely
1: get it. It's a, it's a time thing and it's a planning thing, right? So timing is everything, right? That's yeah. talk about the the four key elements that I have where timing is the fourth of those four key elements. And timing is everything, not just when you're hunting in a certain area, but your habitat work, you know, everything, right. It's like you cross paths with a certain person at a certain time, depending on how one person's day went versus the other one, it might be a good interaction or it might be a bad inter- interaction. Right. But yeah. timing, especially when it comes to food plots, if you, if you have good timing and, and you know, again, more importantly, a good plan. So you understand the timing you need. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. The issue is that we've all kind of just defaulted to hitting the easy button. And that's what these chemical companies have sold us throughout our lifetime. You know, so it's like, I don't really have to think about that, but then, you know, somewhere in this time frame, in the summer, I'm going to go out and I'm going to spray my food plots. And then I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks and they're going to be nice and brown and then I'm going to plant them. Or again, worst case scenario. I'm going to spray them. I'm going to let it die. Then I'm going to till the shit out of it. Then I'm going to wait for it to green up again. Then I'm going to spray it again. And now I've got this nice clean seed bed. Excuse me. Also, you've killed all the biology in the soil by exposing it to UV light and removing the moisture content from it. And you know, you've broken down all that biology that is extremely valuable. That's what, that's what processes all the nutrients and puts them into the plant and therefore into the deer. I mean, it's so simple if you think about it. Your soil health is going to directly relate to the the health of that animal if it's feeding in that plot. Soil health equates to nutritional nutrient-dense plants, which equates to high palatability, which equates equates to highly attracted plants, right? Right. So soil health, nutritional content, palatability, attraction. And that's what you want at the end of the day. So you, you can drop out all the middle ones, soil health and attraction go right. hand in hand. And that's why, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot of information that's being suppressed right now on this avenue of what these chemicals are actually doing to the soil with all this long-term use. And, you know, we know, again, we know that when we we are short on certain minerals in our diet that we're basically predisposed to a lot of conditions, a lot of health issues, and the same goes for your animals. I mean, there's a lot of strikingly similar topics or, or, you know, just like kind of how things played out over time, the stories themselves that correlate glyphosate use to CWD. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. And again, I don't want to just start throwing stuff out there because I don't have all the references in front of me. And I I feel like I owe it to people to, to be able to dig into that, but I'm working to put all that stuff together in my, all my excess free time, but (laughs) there's a, there's just a lot, you know, so back to what you were saying, I've never had a client that argued with me about chemical usage. Every single one of them, when I say our goal, and this is what I say frequently is I'm not anti-chemical. I know it might sound that way from the last five minutes of what I just said, but I think there's a time and a place for that, that level of efficiency. We, you know, chemicals are a very valuable tool to establish good habitat or reestablish good habitat. You know, if you're attacking invasives or whatever it might be, but we should all strive to have a chemical free routine, you know? So even in the food plot game, if that means you're coming in and you're spraying, with an herbicide every few years to get ahead of some weed issue or whatever's causing problems. That's obviously significantly better than going in there and spraying three or four times a season.
0: Right. You know,
1: again, it's just having a plan and keeping a, a living root in that soil, a living plant at all times is going to automatically create enough competition where you don't really have weeds growing. And on top of that, if you're doing no-till, whether you're broadcasting in and rolling it down or using animal integration or no-till drilling it, then you're not stirring up that seed bank. It, it, there's no end to that game, right? You can till and it'll green up. You can till and it'll green up. And that's nature trying to solve a problem, right? That weeds grow yeah. because if that soil is exposed, it's, it's losing value, it's breaking down, and it's, it's desiccating or desertifying, right? It's turning into a desert at some point. So nature naturally is going to try to fill that void with a weed. And that's why you have, you know, weed seeds like ragweed that sit in the soil for hundreds of years, you know, they're viable forever. So they're there. And, you know, it's a benefit to us actually as a, as land managers, where if you want to create good native vegetation in some areas, all you have to do is stir up the soil. But if there's a lot of invasives in the area that can also be counterproductive (laughs) or you have to manage them. Right. So,
0: yeah. Okay. So I, I, 100% 100% agree and bottom line like ev- most people are interested in non like non-chemical like food plots and non-chemical agriculture like people don't want to run behind you know uh, a 2,4-D sprayer like no. that's not very that's not what someone because my dad always tells me I what was the chemical that got banned for making eagle egg soft I forgot what oh
1: one. yeah DDT
0: yeah yeah DDT. I remember my dad was like, "Yeah, when we were kids, we used to run behind them, run behind yeah. <laughs> the sprayers because it was hot and it cooled you down or whatever." But, um, uh, but I, I guess we touched on it real briefly. But as far as like regenerative, regenerative income property or regenerative income, like uh, uh, whatever, ah, regenerative income like agriculture. What, like besides mass crops, you were kind of, or you kind of alluded to mainly timber to, to be able to pull that. Is there anything else? Like, you know, could you plant, you know, at some sort of scale, like something, something that would take the place of corn or soybeans? Cause generally humans, like humans eat soy and humans eat corn, but a lot of that corn is not, it's mainly for cattle, right. To go to feed lots and whatnot. It's not like actually, most. Corn.
1: yeah, most of the corn actually. Either goes to feed or ethanol production, right? or yeah. you know, high fructose corn syrup. So one could easily argue that we just don't need as much damn corn as we grow in this country. Yeah. that's pretty pretty evident at the end of the day because cattle really don't benefit from corn either. They should be consuming the grass side of the grasses yeah. and not the the grain side of it. But, uh, yeah, you as far as cash crops go, I mean, you you absolutely can still plant cash crops in a regenerative system and you're still doing the same practice, you're, you're no-tilling and you're grazing, you're cover cropping, uh, a really, really good book for anyone who is still listening at this point, hasn't just checked out completely (laughs) would be dirt to soil by Gabe Brown. I mean, if if you want to get into kind of the regenerative food plot side of things, you know, and, and I could easily argue that big egg and, and food plotting are, are very similar, but food plotting might be worse for the environment because we're not exactly using technically calibrated uh, sprayers and, and we don't have, you know, most guys don't have the experience or the knowledge for mixing these cocktails and stuff. And so, you know, there's a lot, a lot going on there, but, but that book, uh, Gabe Brown is a, he's a farmer in North Dakota. So, you know, not the best soils, not the best climate in general. And, and he is one of the top producers, I think he actually might be the top producer in his county, if not the state, um as far as the yields go, and he does all no till all cover crops uh he he tell he tells a story he could probably even find a youtube video about it i, I forget when it was, but it was two thousand ten or something uh two thousand eleven doesn't matter there's like a record snowfall in north Dakota like a a horrible winter, and the the uh North Dakota fishing game flew over his property and counted 800 deer in one field. 800 deer in one field because he had healthy soil, highly nutrient dense crops in there. And those deer, when they ran out of resources elsewhere, they migrated to seek that out. And that's where they all ended up was on his property. So, you know, something like that, yeah, just kind of goes to prove. That it can very easily be done. You know, another thing that people should understand on the food plot side of things is most of the food plot seed that's sold these days was developed for certain properties that make animals eat more of it, right? If that, if that makes sense, um, right? It is, so, so when I say that, you might be like, well, yeah, no shit. That's why we want to plant it because then deer are going to eat more of it. <laughs> but the reality is all plants have some level of toxicity to them right? Sure. And, and that's a good thing because that's what stops overeating in nature, right? If, if deer could eat a hundred percent of any given plant, then those plants wouldn't last very long when a herd of deer moved through an area. So every plant has a certain level of toxicity to it. But what we've done is genetically selected and bred for plants with the lowest levels of these toxicities and tannins and stuff over time. So that they're more, I do mean, like, I want to say palatable because I, I like to think of that word as a, a positive word, but you know, they are more palatable or they can be more consumed. They're not necessarily more beneficial to that animal, you know, right. specifically in ag production, which, you know, really pretty much all of your food plot seeds came from egg the ag industry or some form of cover crop seed. Right. I mean, right. It, it, whoever the guy was that invented food plots, you know, basically he was planting cover crops and it's like hey man those uh those deer really seem to like that variety of turnip maybe there's a market for that you know especially right. if you put a bag with bag with a big buck on it we'll get everyone to buy it but <laughs> you know so that's something to think about And it's not necessarily beneficial to deer they are very much creatures of diversity and like i was saying earlier uh, the nutritional makeup of their diet requires d- that diversity for them to truly yeah. thrive and also hold them in any given area. So what what a lot of guys will see, I'm sure, is if, you know, you're planting all soybeans or clover or, you know, maybe you have three or four different varieties of food plot plantings across your property, you're still going to see your bucks there for part of the year and gone for other parts of the year. That's because they have to seek out different nutrients and these secondary Mm -hmm. compounds in their diet that they're not getting from your food plots. And if you have poor native habitat, you know, if you have poorly managed woodlots, then they're not getting it there either. So they, they have to leave. And, you know, from a deer manager standpoint, if you want to grow big deer, then you need to do everything you can to hold them on your property as much as
0: possible. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And don't they say like, I'm trying to look this up right now, but don't they, I I feel like I remember somewhere reading that like 80% of a deer's diet is generally speaking browse, just like random ass shit they find in the woods.
1: Yep. 80 to 85%. Percent is is going to be browse, so that's the thing is you know only fifteen to twenty percent of their diet is going to be off your food plots or the the egg field that they're flowing into after dark at the end of the day anyway you know which is another reason why that that native habitat and that browse is yeah is so beneficial and important to them you know right. especially right now this time of year it's you know they need that browse more than anything and right and that's why corn that's and soybeans. True.
0: By that mature timber isn't like that pretty picturesque, you know, look through the woods timber is not nearly that great. It's because of the fact that like, there's not a whole lot of browse in there, right? Correct.
1: Yeah. And that's why right. if you have timber like that, you're probably not picking up as many sheds as you would have if you have good thick cover. You know, unless right. unless you have the only food source in the area and then, you know, Sure. That, that they have no choice at this point. They they have to eat to heat, right? If it's cold, they have yeah. to eat something to metabolize to produce enough body heat to survive these winters. And if you have the only food source in the area, then they're going to be there. But if there's food source somewhere else, you know, especially in the form of browse, and that's what that's what I strive for on all these properties is improve that browse because it's going to be beneficial year round, right. and then supplement that browse with the food plots that are really there as that highly attractive supplemental food source that keeps them coming back to a certain area with consistency.
0: Yeah. So then, um, as far as the the cash crops, what are, I mean, you can, you can plant, you can plant corn again, you can plant soybeans and you can do it in an organic fashion, I suppose. Right. No chemicals and and kind of do it. Are there any other cash crops besides like that you have looked into and have seemed to work um, besides like the main, like three or four that everyone knows? Right now that I can
1: think of anyway, the most profitable cash crop is chestnuts. Really? Without a a shadow of a doubt. Now, if you're too far north, then you're going to struggle to grow them. But, you know, basically the I-90 corridor and south, you should have no problems with it chestnuts are a huge cash crop right now. They're it's something that I didn't know about until a few years ago because apparently Americans are the only people in the world that don't eat chestnuts. But the rest of the people you know in the fact that our country is made up of a lot of immigrants with that heritage around the globe, chestnuts are one of the most sought after nuts. They're extremely beneficial. They're they're using them a lot for gluten-free flour and stuff like that. Uh, but they're, you know, a, a mature chestnut tree can produce anywhere from a hundred to 200 pounds of chestnuts every year, and you can get up to $10 a pound for chestnuts. So if you, if you look at on an acreage scale, compare that to corn, when you have an acre of corn that you have all these inputs every year that are fluctuating, you know, fertilizers, herbicides, not to mention the mechanization of the the planting and harvesting processes. Your net profit from corn is very minimal. I mean, most of these guys planting big fields of corn, they're just doing it because they get a guaranteed subsidy check from the government. But if you have a well-established, mature stand of chestnuts, you have zero inputs at this point. You know, you can dial back, to what it costs you to get started, you know, $10, $20 a tree, uh, another $20 for protective equipment. So the deer don't chew it off immediately. So that's really your investment. And then just taking care of those trees and the soil around them to ensure that they're healthy. Once they're mature, seven to 10 years of age, and they start producing nuts, you're making money. And the beauty of them is they live to be a thousand years old. So that's where it really comes into play when we're setting up these properties. I mean, you and it doesn't work on every property obviously right uh, but you have the potential to create a, a legitimate legacy so we were talking earlier about you know your debate on buying a house on a lake or a house with with land yeah. man i i would be looking for a chunk of land that lays out with good sun exposure that you can run some long lines create some edge habitat and do rows of chestnut trees what i'm doing on a handful of client properties this year and this might interest you as well, and, and we can certainly talk more off off air, but uh, I'm building some actual permaculture orchards with chestnuts as the main canopy tree, but we're also adding understory trees. So if you talk about forest ecology in general, you have the different layers or different levels mm. of you know essentially how those plants utilize the sun. So we're trying to fill all those niches to get the most out of this edge habitat. And we're doing so by creating these permaculture rows with... Chestnut trees as canopy layer, apple pear plum trees as the understory layer, and then we even drop down in the shrub layer and we're doing different mass bearing shrubs and then we even drop down into like the bramble and understory layer of like berry production depending on how that lays out on your property we we are creating a Upic system, an orchard system with a member membership only network where people come out and they, they harvest this stuff on their own off your property. You know, it's, it's, it's a guided sort of experience, but now there's no mechanization and there's no cost for the harvest. And we open it up during a very specific time of the year, outside of hunting season, obviously. (laughs) They're They're in, they're out, they get what they can, you make the money off of it. And then the rest goes to the wildlife. And, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of these designs is, you know, we can structure this, Based on the tree species, we can pick when we want those fruits to be ripe. So again, we can, we can do this outside of the hunting season. And, you know, again, we're not doing this everywhere on the property. So we're not going to go in the depths of your property where we want to create a sanctuary and do this. But if you have tillable land right now, that's got easy access, we can do these rows, we space them out enough where we're still grazing cattle or running crops. It's called alley cropping in between these rows of trees. So you're getting maximum sun exposure in that area. And you're diversifying your income off that property, whether it be cash crops, whether it be uh, grazing cattle for cattle production, or the mass production from these trees and shrubs and berries. And it's all in a, a chemical free system because, you know, that's the whole, the whole idea of regenerative ag or permaculture systems is you're farming in the image of nature, right? You're trying to create, recreate yeah. these natural systems. so. By having all this diversity, you have all, you know, with your plants, you have all this diversity with your insects and you have all this diversity with your birds and, and, and all the other wildlife that comes in there and really manages it. The mindset that we have to get out of our head is that bugs are bad or birds are bad or wildlife in general is bad. You know, we don't, we can't look at it and go, and this is why I like working with hunters on this stuff because they understand it, right? Most of the time they haven't even thought about this until I show up. But when they look at it from a wildlife perspective and we just go, you know, we're willing to give X percentage of this to the wildlife. Right. And and that's fine because they manage it. You know, the the good insects and the bad insects compete with each other and the birds are there and they clean up both of them. And if you don't have the good insects and the bad insects, there's not enough insects in general for the birds to really survive and thrive. So there's a lot of it, a lot of it. You know, that's just scratching the surface, so to speak. But. Hmm. Again, it all comes down to having a plan because the the upfront costs can be kind of daunting, but not if you space them out, you know? And so anyone listening that has ag fields and they're afraid to give up part of that field because they rely on that rental income every year, we can do it for sure. We just put together a strategy that makes the most sense. And we start putting in a couple of rows here or there. And then once they mature and establish and start actually producing money, they'll easily pay for all the rest of it. I mean, again, you you talk about $200 an acre, I, I think the, the highest I've seen or heard of yet with any of my clients is like maybe two fifty an acre, obviously, if you're getting down into, I don't even want to call it prime land. Cause the land is so the soil is so terrible now, but the, the, like the grain belt of Iowa or Illinois, then the, it might be higher than that, but it's still not going to compare to what you can get out of these chestnuts if you have the market for them. And that's what we're doing is is working to create more of this market. And I mean, conservatively, You're talking $10,000 an acre pretty easily. And that's just the chestnuts. That's not including all the other stuff. So the other stuff is really kind of looked at as a kind of a buffer because those trees are going to mature a little bit sooner. The shrubs and stuff will mature in a few years, the berries in a couple of years. So you're automatically creating that income right off the bat. And then once those chestnuts develop, like I said, you you get uh, an acre of mature chestnuts. You have zero inputs. In fact, your input costs back to what I was saying before, like trying to get your management to pay for itself. If you're, if you're managing the land with cattle, now it's twofold, right? You're either getting paid by someone to graze cattle on your property, or you're grazing cattle yourself and selling that as another income stream. And that's managing the land, improving the soil all the time and improving that soil puts new nutri- more nutrients out there available for those trees. So they're going to mature faster and they're going to produce a heavier crop every year. So it's, it's from my perspective, it's a no brainer It's just right. kind of this like generational barrier that you know the generation ahead of us is so set in doing this and and again i I completely understand if someone is financially tied to some form of that income, but that's why I, I think that hunters i i truly honestly believe that hunters are, are the people that are going to turn this shit around when it comes to the ag industry. If there's enough guys that control enough land and start making these changes and you get these other guys looking at it and be like, wow, like that, that just, it just makes a lot of sense. Right. And it's good right. for everyone. And, you know, these are things that I think of when I look at my kids and, you know, everything is full of chemicals these days. And it seems like every time you turn around, you hear of another person in your life that you're somehow associated with that has cancer or some autoimmune disease. And it's all stemming from our food system at the end of the day. You know, we're exposed to all these chemicals, everything from the clothes that we wear to the products that we buy and put in our house or in our vehicles and such. And then we put all this food in our system. That's got chemicals in it. I, you know, for those of you listening and that eat deer meat, I mean, if you're spraying your food plots with chemicals, that's ending up in your deer in one way, shape or form. And, and there's also, a a ton of research that's proven that, uh, that glyphosate's not inactive when it hits the soil. I mean, it can be reactivated with certain chemical compounds in the soil or certain, certain mineral compounds and certain levels of moisture will actually reactivate that glyphosate in the soil. So it can be taken back up into the plants again and can cause all sorts of issues. So think about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, that's, I, I, I don't, I, I think it is somewhat generational, but I also think it's, um, it's educational. Like if you, like when we flipped our, our property, we had ag land, 25 acres of ag. It was a handshake deal from 20 years ago. We got it. The farmer was like, Hey, I paid two grand for this 25 acres. I'll do that with you too. And we were like, dude, two grand. That's like 70 bucks an acre. Like, come on you can yeah. do better than that. And he was like, Nope, that's what I'm paying you. And we're like, okay, fine. Like you do it this year. And then, and then next year, by that time, we had looked into different programs for CRP. That's how we ended up on CRP was this monarch, monarch butterfly program, which is put your land into CRP. They give you, I think like 80, 90 bucks an acre for that. And then if you plant a certain percentage in milkweed, they'll give you another uh, 30 to 50 bucks an acre. So So my dad was like, hey, this is good. We're going to go organic. We're going to go, we're going to put in a bunch of milkweed. We're going to do a whole lot of native restoration here. Like I'm good with this and we're going to get paid 150 bucks an acre. If, if at the time I would have said, hey dad, like, yeah, let's, let's do that on 20 of the 25 acres and let's take five of it out and do some chestnuts. And we're going to pay for a whole bunch of this stuff through this. Like we're going to pilot this over here. And if we like it, we can do it all over here. He would have probably been like, okay. Like if if you would have, like he did it by roughly by the numbers. Like what can we do to make money and, and do, and bring back native, native land. That's, and if he would have, if you would have been like, if we would have known this at the time, that contract would have never been signed. Right. So I, I think like there's certain, and as land turns over. And those old farmers who have been farming it for years and years and years, as long as they're, which a lot of that stuff moves down generational, right? This is how my dad did it. This is how I'm going to do it. And this is like, and people just you don't like once you once you know how to how to till and plant and pick, yes. like and you have any of the money invested in that equipment, right? And that's like you're just like, yeah, this is what I do. I till plant, pick. I make two hundred bucks an acre. the The only way I'm going to scale is getting more acreage, like. Yep and I need to just keep doing the same thing. It's not, well, let me just relook at how I can reallocate this land to make more money. It's that's not the question. The question is how do I get more land to plant more corn?
1: Right. Yep. No, that's you're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. And you know, back to the CRP thing, it it can fluctuate a lot. What they pay you, you know, there's that grading system where they look at the property, look at erosion potential, all this stuff. And, and CRP, it's good, you know. It it's not great. It just depends on the situation. You know, I I would say if you have healthy soil, uh, I'd rather see it go into CRP than just be cash cropped for sure. Uh, sure. Where like in your situation, you're creating pollinator habitat, and you know that's probably really good fawning habitat for your does when that that grass is taller. You know, if there's some structure left from the year before, and obviously ground nesting birds, all that stuff's going to benefit, and just the overall diversity in the area that's beneficial. The issue with CRP that I have, anyway, is on poor ground, you know, like overfarmed, depleted soil. It, CRP is a rest program, right? It's it's not in no way, shape, or form does it improve the land. It just puts it into a state of rest. Because if you're not integrating animals into that CRP to cycle the nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You can go in there and burn it off every few years, but when you burn it off, X percentage of that carbon goes up into the air and X percentage of it breaks down on the ground and and does end up back in the soil, but not, not nearly at the same rate as running cattle through those areas. And that's, you know, that's the whole principle behind that regenerative concept is integrating cattle for that nutrient management program. You know, so like I, I can very easily look at different properties in different areas, and you know, again, this is this is probably a horse that's been beaten for a long time. But uh, when you start talking about the correlation between certain ag practices and Pope and Young or Boone and Crockett bucks throughout the country, right? I've seen this yeah. before, where guys would be like, "Well, you can you can very easily see that anywhere soybeans are planted, that's where the biggest bucks are killed, right?" Well, I could I could tell you that it's probably actually more related to alfalfa than soybeans when you start looking at it across the board. And if you dial in a little bit deeper on that, it's probably more related to the fact that alfalfa is grown on dairy farms more than these cash crop farms that are just putting all these chemical inputs into it. And not to say dairy farms aren't aren't applying chemicals, but dairy farms typically have a significantly better nutrient management program because they hold the cattle year round so they spread manure on the fields versus a cash cropper that just goes in puts in his synthetic inputs a couple times a year and then pulls his crop off at the end of the year so sure. there's a lot there's a lot there to think about too but you know if if, if I'm you know back to the land buying idea yeah. if I'm looking to buy land and I'm looking at my neighbors it's a huge advantage to buy land or if you're looking to lease a property to hunt on or if you if you own land and you're looking to lease your your cropland out to a local farmer I would prioritize leasing to a dairy farmer before I lease it to a cash cropper because that dairy farmer especially if you put him in a long-term contract he's going to spread manure on that ground cuz he's not going to spend all the money he can on synthetic inputs cuz he's going to get more bang for his buck out of his nutrient management program so he's going to work to build up the soils a lot better and, you know, if, if you're lucky, he'll plant alfalfa or something that's mm-hmm. alfalfa is way better than soybeans, in my opinion, uh, for attracting and holding and growing big deer. You know, I've, I've killed a couple 200 inch deer that were habitually using alfalfa fields at some point in their life. You know, I mean, obviously there's plenty of people that can say they killed 200 inch deer over soybean fields too, but this, the soil itself and the practices used in that system are, are significantly better. And it, it all relates back to how much nutrients are getting into those animals.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's in I mean, that's really interesting. Um so man, I don't even know like where to go from here. <laughs> this was not what I was expecting to chat about today. But I yeah, love it.
1: Weren't we gonna talk about trail cameras? We were <laughs> gonna
0: talk about we were gonna talk about live feed trail cameras, live streaming, live streaming trail cameras. And we will we will do that, Tom. We will do that at some point. um maybe not maybe not today i have a i have a a company party uh that i have to attend but i mean before before we we sign off here like as far as as far as you know leasing out land and whatnot like i can understand doing cow like a dairy farm versus uh, a crop farmer like that that makes sense What do you have any sort of reservation? One thing that I've heard is like I'm not I'm not a huge fan of manure spreading, especially if it's any near a water source, because you're just essentially like a lot of that shit can run off and run into the water source.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's obviously there's responsibilities involved with every every practice. Yeah. Um, some dairy farmers actually, I'd say probably most of them nowadays will. Okay, let's back up for a second. Most of your runoff issues are going to happen by spreading manure this time of year, right? right. Where they're spreading manure, yes, yeah. on frozen ground on top of snow, and then you get a snow melt. There's a spot, actually, not far from where I live here. I live in La Crosse, Wisconsin. <clears throat> Anyone in this area is probably familiar with the the Jersey Valley incident catastrophe, whatever you want to call it. Where basically, a couple of local farmers spread a a lot of manure in the winter time. And then all the snow melted and basically all this manure entered the watershed and, and wreaked havoc in that ecosystem. So it was, it was a big deal. This was, man, it was probably 20 years ago, but uh, most guys now are running a system where they inject the bulk of that under the ground with a subsoiler. So they actually inject it, you know, a couple inches or six inches underground, um, if it's done in the summertime when the ground's thawed out and you have growing plants, it's, a, you know, manure is, it's very nutrient dense and it's very bioavailable and it breaks down pretty quickly, especially if you have healthy soil. So everything comes back to that soil, right? I mean, even if you, say you grow uh sorghum or corn or something in a, in a field that has very healthy, active soils, it's going to break down those stalks, that carbon's going to get broken down. At a significantly faster rate than if your soils are sterile, where you know you've sprayed and sprayed and sprayed and worked that soil, then that that residue sits there for a lot longer. So it's the same thing with manure when they spread manure. Um, but what I would say is, you know, anyone thinking about this stuff, well, just call me. <laughs> I'll help you out. I mean, one one of the things that yeah. I do. There's so many variables involved, so it's hard to explain it all the time. And what you know, the same goes with dealing with a logger as, as dealing with a farmer, right? So if you lease land and you're renting out your cropland, you probably are only ever going to deal with one or two farmers in your lifetime. So, you know, you're not really, you really don't have the ability to shop around, not to any extent where you're going to get the best deal. You know, like in your situation, the farmer was like, this is what I'll pay you. And you're like, well, we want more. And he's like, well, that's too bad. This is what I'll pay you. Right. Right what I do with a lot of my clients is I help them put together the, the land use agreements or these contracts with the farmers. So we could even say like, you know, we want manure on the fields, but we don't want it spread between these times of year, plain and simple. You know, the same goes with contract grazing. We want you to graze it, but we only want cattle in here this time of year. We only want this many, you know, this stocking rate for this duration. So right. we, we are prioritizing. We are incorporating agriculture into our management plan, but we are prioritizing the health of the land, which is what everyone should be doing at the end of the day. Right. Right. And and again, that's why I I strongly feel that it's going to be hunters and recreational property owners that are prioritizing the environment if they're doing that. Now I say that loosely because there's a lot of guys out there that one either don't understand it or two don't care to understand it. They're just in it cause they want to kill a big deer as quickly as they possibly can. And that's it. Right. So they're, they're, they're willing to outsource that income or that knowledge, however they can, you know, if, if that farmer's next door, well, yeah, he's farming a thousand acres. I should trust him. Right. Well, maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, but again, that's where, where I come into play. And the same goes with loggers, right? I just walked a, a, a client property the other day with a logger, great guy, you know, and the same with these farmers, I'm I'm not, trying to bash these farmers by any means but the same goes with the logger if if you hire a logger to cut your property and you know again you're probably only going to ever deal with a logger once or twice in your lifetime yeah versus me where i've dealt with three of them in the last four days you know it's like they're going to walk your property and they're going to take every tree that is worth them hooking a cable onto and skidding out of the woods because that's their job yeah but if i walk the property with them or hand them a very strict plan that says, you know, we only want trees of this size taken out in these areas and maybe in these bedding areas, but we can be a little bit less picky because we want to open up the canopy more, so on and so forth. You know, then you're ensuring that you have the quality habitat that you want going forward. And a big thing on that, not to go off on a whole nother tangent, um, is the oaks in general. You know, we need to, People need to dial back on logging oaks right now. Like they really do. It's uh, it's 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 kind of scary to me because probably because I know too much in regards to that. But, you know, a, a walnut tree right now is worth a lot of money. A, a, you know, a big walnut tree might be worth 1000 to $5,000 depending on the size of the tree. Maybe even more than that, depending on, on how tall and straight and, and big that tree is. A, an oak about the same size is going to be worth... Three to five hundred dollars, right? So you know, obviously, three to five hundred dollars is a lot of money, right? Cut down two of those, I can buy a new bow this year. Sweet. (laughs) Well, you're cutting down a a three to five hundred dollar oak is probably a two hundred to three hundred year old tree, and the issue that I see across the board is the combination of high deer densities and all these invasives sitting in the soil. Is there's no oak regeneration happening, plain and simple. I mean there's just it's almost impossible without good management to get oak regeneration in any of these areas so people are logging oaks to open up the canopy and create deer habitat but we're not promoting oak regeneration so we're going to lose all of our oaks at some point if we don't pay attention now right. some people might think well you know so be it right it's just a tree well we lost all of our our chestnut trees in this country a couple hundred years ago due to a blight that went through and wiped out a fair percentage of them, the Japanese chestnut blight. That's why chestnuts are so sought after by wildlife because most wildlife has evolved to seek out chestnuts because it was one of the top mass producing trees in the country until the blight came in. And then the government thought that they were being smart and getting ahead of it. And they just ordered the cutting of all the rest of the the, the chestnut trees, which again a whole another rabbit hole there because a lot of these invasives were brought in by by the government too to use for certain aspects of you know erosion control or or fence rows or whatever it might be but with the oaks oaks are the host plant to over 500 species of lepidoptera in the larval state so moths and butterflies in the larval state right so they lay their eggs on an oak that oak or that that egg hatches becomes a caterpillar X percentage of those caterpillars are consumed by birds. Most of them that time of year are fed to to nest, you know, nestlings or uh, hatchling chicks gives them tons of protein, tons of energy so they can grow and they can grow fast enough to make the migration route in the fall. Um, so 500 plus species of moths and butterflies are gone when we lose our oaks and, you know, not just the cutting of the oaks and the lack of regeneration, but we also are dealing with oak wilt and other diseases and stuff that happen as well. So went kind of on a tangent there, but the, 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 <laughs> the what I'm getting at is it's important to understand how you're utilizing your land
0: mm-hmm.
1: and think, try to think not just short-term, like how do I make money right now? You know, and I, and again, I understand that, uh, but also think long-term and not to sling mud, at realtors, I've got a lot of realtor friends and I, I there's a lot of really good realtors out there, but I wouldn't take land management advice from realtors, plain and simple, because most of the time a realtor is going to do everything they can to talk you into buying a property and that's their job, right? right?
0: Yeah. I mean, the,
1: the analogy that I use with this is, you know, I'm not going to take advice on how to fix my car from the, the guy who sold me my car. I'm going to talk to the mechanic, right? The guy whose job yeah. is to fix cars, not the guy who sold me the damn car. Okay. Right. It's the same, same with realtors where they, there's a lot of them that are very knowledgeable and, you know, they and a lot of them own land and manage land on their own, but most of them aren't looking long-term they're looking short-term and they want you to understand, Hey, okay, this is, this land costs this much. So, you know, if you have this much for a down payment and this is the interest rate, this is what your monthly payments are going to be. And if X percentage of this is in CRP, that's, you know, that you know, two thousand dollars a year on that, and then this much is untilable so it's another four thousand dollars a year on that. On that, you know, and and then there's some timber value here. You can pull that, and like you'll be sitting pretty good if you go through and do all these things. Well, that's great, but what's happening? And I see this all too often. This is the scary thing to me, is we're setting up the next generation in this country for worse shit than we've dealt with, right? <laughs> it, 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 just all we have to do is look around, right? I mean, there's a reason why we are in this state of chaos throughout the world and throughout this country. And it's because a lot of us, a lot of the people in the generation ahead of us have focused on certain things and, and either weren't involved or didn't understand other aspects of what's happening, you know, around the world in a community level at home with a health level, whatever it might be. Right. So we all need to be, better and pay more attention yeah. to all of these things and this is why i you know i kind of have a problem with with anyone who specializes in one thing or another without consulting or conferring other specialists in general right like yeah. a network of specialists other parts of the
0: puzzle yeah
1: absolutely you know when you have a team of people that understand how a system works or how all these moving parts operate together things just tend to turn out better in the long run. But when you have someone who's really good at extracting this or that, and doesn't understand the, the consequences of it down the road, it usually ends very poorly at the end of the day. So, you know, again, the farming practices, the, the timber sand management practices, all these things, they all go hand in hand. You know, they're all synonymous because, you know, if we lose our native habitat, the farming habitat or the farming land is going to lose quality as well. Right. We right. both of those yeah. practices or both of those areas of land rely on one another to maintain health in these ecosystems. And that's why, that's why I've done a lot of work the last few years. And I've kind of shifted how I put together these properties. You know, my focus is for what people generally hire me for, which is like, Hey, how do I grow and kill bigger deer? Okay. Right. But at the end of the day, that's, Somewhat elementary to me at this point, right? right? If you if your property is set up well and you have a good management practice and you keep the pressure off, and you have food in the right spots and and the right kind of food and quality of food, you're gonna have deer and you're gonna have good deer. I mean, it's really not that hard to get big deer these days. It's not that easy to kill them all the time, right? I'm not I'm not I'm not, not trying to downplay <laughs> it. It's still a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, on the grand scheme of things, I just want more people to think long-term and that's where having a good plan, a good long-term plan, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And, and these hunters are, or these guys that own recreational yeah. properties are in a position where they can invest in their property. Now, you know, a lot of the guys actually are looking for a place to put their money yeah, and right. there's no, there's no better place to put your money than in land. And there's no better place to put your money in land than, than land that's going to, pay out down the road. If you have that patience, I mean, you you could put your money in a retirement fund all day and you have no control over that. Right. Right. But there's all these things you can do to a property to improve the value of it mm-hmm. at all times. It's just not going to be that immediate payout. And you're not going to be able to look right. at your investment account and be like, oh man, I'm up 20% in that, uh, that portfolio or whatever it might be. When you look at that land, you can look at land prices and everything, obviously, but you know, to me, it's more important that I do everything possible to hand that land off to the next generation and give them an advantage moving forward versus, Hey, you know, I got what I needed out of it. Good luck.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, man. I, I agree. And that's a great, great message. And to add to your point, you know, it's uh what you're talking about earlier, it's always, I've always taken the mindset of kind of follow the money. Like if someone's giving you advice, follow the money, like, and that'll, that'll give you a really, really good idea as to what their angle is. Right. Yeah. Like it's almost always an angle, right? Don't, don't take your health advice from a company that makes the, 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 the food uh, pyramid. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, don't, don't do that. And don't no. like, yeah, don't, don't take uh heart advice from the company that makes heart medication. Like, yeah,
1: <laughs> right? well, and that's, that's why you shouldn't take your farming advice. From the same company that sells you the the medications to cure your ailments right. when you're sick. I mean exactly. it it really is that simple at the end of the day. It right? is. And I think more people are are waking up and and understanding that, right? And and that's yeah, you know, we talk about this at the the podcast that me and a buddy of mine started, um, the Regenerating yeah. Nature podcast. We talk about that we've got some guests coming on and some things where I'm just kind of digging into some other avenues, but a lot of it happens to be current events. And we talk about the importance of understanding how you're spending your money, plain and simple, right? We, we, the consumers control the world at the end of the day, right? Like there's, yeah. I saw, what were the stats I saw the other day, that BlackRock and Vanguard own 99% or like 98% of the world's assets. So 1% of the global population owns 90 some percent Man. of the assets. But the reality is that everyone out there who's spending money consuming from these companies that these, these two giant corporations own, we are the ones that are in control. I mean, yeah. all, all it's going to take, and it's happening more and more. I see it all the time, but all it's going to take is for people to stop buying, you know, XYZ product. That's got this crap in it. That's not good for us. Right. You know, right. and you start digging in that again, a whole nother rabbit hole, lots of rabbit holes. Today, yeah. When the money, that's where the off, money the product is
0: product stops. Right. Exactly. That's exactly. And,
1: and, and, farming
0: marketing increases or legislation changes.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, and you can't rely on that anymore because right. half of our government's in bed with, I shouldn't even yeah. say half, it's probably the majority is in bed with these companies themselves. So, yeah. you know, these lobbyists and all that stuff, but you know, it's, it, that's where that regenerative farming comes into play. Right. And it's such a simple concept. Like this is what's healthy for the land. No chemicals, no inputs. I mean, it's all uh, you're farming in nature's image. You're producing the most nutrient dense food, you know? So here's another stat I'll throw out there. It's like these guys that are, that are planting GMO crops for deer. Right. I, I try to always bring it back to the the, yeah. the deer mindset because people are willing to do crazier things or seemingly crazier things for yeah, yeah, deer yeah. <laughs> than their own health. Uh, I mean, I've been guilty of that too, right? Not <laughs> sleeping for days to do stuff for deer. But uh, a, a GMO crop, on average, is like forty percent less nutrient dense than a non-GMO crop. So you might think that you're you're providing all this value to your deer by planting Roundup Ready beans or corn. But if you really want to provide that value, then you're going to find a way to plant a a, a non-GMO correct, because there's trade-offs there. Again, like we've we've engineered these plants where they don't uptake certain minerals and certain things and certain chemical compounds are lower in them, but there's a trade-off. I mean, that's that's true across the scale. We we know everything from oranges to wheat nowadays and how it's produced is 40 to 50% less nutritious to us as humans as it was 20 years ago before this big chemical era, right. you know? So again, stop focusing on like hitting that easy button we'll and start. just start thinking And it, it, it's not that yeah. hard. You know, that's the thing is it's not that hard. And no. I was in this camp. I was in that camp for a long time, man, a long time. I grew up on a large farm. I mean, the farm that I still go to and, and hunt on is I think right now it's like 1400 acres. I mean, it's growing yeah. all the time. Dang. Uh, I mean, probably only 300 acres of it. It's huntable land. Most of it's tillable, but they're still farming conventionally. So I'm not trying to bash them again. It's a generational thing and things are going to trend a different way. So back to the consumer side of things, if we want to get ahead of this, whether it's the food plot industry or the the food industry itself is we just stop spending our money with, with companies that promote bad practices, you know, because their priority is making money. And yeah. not, they don't, they don't care about the long-term side effects of it, but, right. you know, I, there's a reason, one of the main reasons that we only eat venison and chicken in our house is because it's the healthiest food that we can put on the table at the end sure. of the day. Right. Now uh, grass-fed regenerative beef is actually probably healthier than the deer. Cause I can't control if that deer goes and eats out of the farmer's field. I'm not spraying my food pots, right. but it might be going to the field, but, but, you know, it's like if you just keep eating the same crappy food and then complaining about crappy health and how you feel <laughs> you know right. it's your own da- it's your own fault yeah. at the end of the day so
0: that's right all right with that i got to get to this dinner party my wife's texting me she's like get upstairs <laughs> we're leaving so with that uh tom milsna did i say that right milsna
1: Thomas, Thomas Mills. Stuff. No, I go by, I go by Thomas generally, but Thomas. Tom's okay. okay. I'll let it go. Sorry, Thomas. I like, <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. With the untamed ambition, I'll put the links in the show notes and we will have another podcast on the trail cameras and the live stream and stuff. I want to cover that, but this regenerative conversation was, I think is really important for a lot of people to hear. And yeah, and, you no, know, it was a good time. More, it's more and more important to me. Um, and so maybe other people think that's important too.
1: <laughs> I, I, I feel like for me and not to not to delay you anymore, but for me, as soon as we had kids, your perspective on life changes, right? It's not just like, yeah. what can I do to, to, to do whatever mm. it's now, it's like, okay, what can I do to ensure that I'm doing the right things for them? You yeah. know? And, and there's a lot of things that we've done in this industry and every other industry that may have worked and are working They're seeming, they seem to be working, but they're not the best thing in the long run. Right. 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 Like. It's so like if I want to treat depression short term, I can just drink a bunch of booze, right? That's gonna that's gonna fix my problem short term, but right. that's not the best best thing to do long term. <laughs> There's a lot better long term solutions, right? So 100%. yeah, you better get going. I don't want to hold All you right. up any longer. It's great <laughs> chatting with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, great catching up, Thomas. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate yeah. the time. Um, yeah, I'll drop your stuff in the, in the show notes below if you guys want to check them out. Reach out to them. Instagram best way. Facebook phone yeah, number, yep. what do you want? Any yeah. of those.
1: um, I'll throw you my link tree. Sure. Link. Um, yeah. All that stuff should be on there.
0: Okay. Can I put your email in the show notes too?
1: Yep. Absolutely. Okay.
0: Fantastic. We'll do that. All right. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please like subscribe, tell your friends, spread the word. Uh, regenerative egg is the way to go. All right. Catch you guys all later. Right, take care.